hospital with her hands chained to the bed where she was repeatedly beaten and tortured so violently it's required her to have a hysterectomy. She is currently serving the remainder of her sentence a prisoner of the state accused of being a Christian. Why was she arrested? Like hundreds of thousands of others around the world who profess Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, why was she treated with such focused hatred? Because Jesus confronts every person in every culture, in every nation, with the unflinching command to obey the gospel by repenting of sin and trusting fully in Him as the one and the only means of being right with God. What did they do with Jesus? Well, they attacked Him. They brutalized His followers. Because, you see, they have always recognized that Jesus is a threat to everyone and everything that they believe and have built their lives upon. April 16, 2007, Sung Hui Cho killed 32 people and wounded many more before he took his own life in a terrible rampage on the university campus of Virginia Tech. We were all glued to the images carried by every news agency. Shock mingled with deep grief began to strike our nation. But yet there was something more stunning yet to come. As campus officials planned the memorial service that would be televised live across the nation, they determined that it should be an interfaith service. And as the cameras rolled, there was a Buddhist quote, Buddhist who quoted the Dalai Lama and referred to the basic goodness of man. There was a Jewish woman who read from Ecclesiastes 3. There was a Muslim who quoted from the Quran and appealed to Allah. And then there was a liberal Lutheran pastor who gave a brief, empty pep talk about sticking together and helping each other. But not one time was the name Jesus Christ mentioned in the entire memorial service. What did they do with Jesus? They omitted any reference of Him. And there's a reason for that. Because Christ's claims about Himself and what is proclaimed about Him in the Bible are so specific and exclusive that He is offensive to a pluralistic, all roads lead to heaven culture. Almost everything is tolerated in the public arena but Jesus. On Thursday, March 22nd, 2008, the Burlington Township High School of Burlington, New Jersey, conducted a mock terrorist drill to train the student body in evacuation procedures and practices should some crazed person or persons enter the premises waving guns. The school superintendent 
Chris Mano stated that the goal was to, and I quote, to practice under conditions that are as real as possible. But the story they made up didn't involve gothic-dressed drug addicts or America-hating jihadists. Instead, the hostage-taking madman in this make-believe drill. It was two Christians who were seeking justice because the daughter of one of them was expelled for praying in class. Why in the world would school officials make Christians the villains if they're trying to make it as real as possible? It's because our culture increasingly sees the demands of Jesus on the world that they're just as far out and as crazy. Violent tenets of Islam. What did the principal of this New Jersey school do with Jesus? He made him look in the eyes of the students and the teachers and his, that his followers are borderline lunatics. That they're just waiting for the right trigger to set them off. So I ask you again, those of you in this room this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? Part four of our series, Opening Your Trauma Toolbox. We've set the, set the nail on three anchor truths that will keep you safe and stable and strong when the storm hits. We examined last week Ephesians 2 and faced the necessary truth about ourselves that we're lost and more specifically we're dead in our trespasses and sins, dominated by the devil, destined for hell. All of our self-help efforts and religious rituals can do nothing to change that. We need somebody to rescue us. We need somebody to rescue us. Someone powerful enough to raise us from our spiritual death and make us alive to God. Someone strong enough to overcome the rule of Satan in our lives. Someone with the power of God Himself to secure our destiny in heaven forever. And this morning, I present to you that Savior whose disciples are persecuted and killed in this world right now today and whose gospel is increasingly marginalized in our own country. I'm not going to give you a set of ideas to mull over and decide whether to accept or reject. I will instead this morning lay before you the great one, God, and that great one that God sent, whom the Bible consistently presents as our only hope of forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation and new life that never ends. I'm going to come straight at you, unvarnished. And the statement that I want to say to you is, and again, to ask the question, and I hope that you're beginning to ask yourself, is what am I going to do with Jesus? I want to go upstairs with you into the room where Jesus and his disciples are gathered to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Passover. They are feasting and retelling the story of God's deliverance from the slavery in Egypt. Jesus explains that he is about to leave them. Knowing that the cross is just hours away, he tells them to, in John 13, 33, where I am going, you cannot come. It's a very upsetting statement to his friends. Peter always liked to be the first one to react to anything Jesus said. Pops off and, after, and Jesus, uh, he says, Lord, where are you going? In verse 36. <laughs> And Jesus answered him and said, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter 
press more on the issue. Lord, why can't I, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Peter and the disciples clearly understood that what was about to happen and why Jesus uh, would no longer be with them. They, they, they just couldn't grasp it. And Jesus demonstrates His sovereign insight into the heart of Peter when He quickly and quietly answers Peter. And He says, will you lay down your life for me? I assure you, a rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So if Jesus were to ask you and me today, what are you going to do with me? What are you going to do with me? You know, Peter mulled over in in his mind Jesus' words. They were hard for him. And then Jesus addresses the whole group. In John chapter 14, if you have that, open your Bibles there to John chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 1. And he answers his disciples with great tenderness. And Jesus will utter some of the most startling and yet powerful words of his entire ministry. And I want you, as we read these words together, I want you to sense how personal and how emotional these words are as he shares with his followers. Your heart must be troubled, must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or many mansions. If not, not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way where I'm going. Now look what's happening. Jesus is telling them about where where He's going. He's going to heaven to be where the Father is, and they will be separated for a time, but they will come back together. Jesus is telling them, I'm I'm working on a place for you. And by working on the place, and He tells them, I'm going to come back and get you. And where I'm going, there you can come also. Jesus is deliberately planting this idea to grab their curiosity. And Jesus says, I already know something that I can't really pull you up to right now. Don't don't miss this point. In the earlier teachings that I gave you, thankfully though, Thomas is so much like us. Thomas refused to pretend that he understood. Have you ever been in a conversation with some folks and they're talking about stuff? You have no idea what's going on, but you sure act like you do. That's where they were. So Thomas does what you, what somebody usually does in our group that really, you know, yeah, oh yeah, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. When you really don't have a clue what they're doing, what they're talking about, that looks like most of the faces on Friday night at our high school football game when Coach Bryant pulls the secondary over and says, why didn't, didn't you see that guy? And we're all the time, we're having to tie his arms down so he can't cut himself stab himself you know it's hard to stab yourself when you like this but thomas he says lord lord we do not right right there in, in john 14 keep looking lord we do not know where you're going how can we know the way huh. now for the most riveting statement jesus ever made sets himself apart from anyone else in the world 
that has been or ever will be. This is the one line alone spoken in hushed tones to a small group in an upstairs room. And it's why his followers are hunted down in China and gospel is silenced in funeral services. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus answers Thomas and he says it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In your Bible, highlight, underline, circle that phrase, except through me. That statement alone tells you that there is one way that's right and every other way is wrong. When you hear people in conversations about religious things and you hear them say, well, we're all working for the same goal. No, we're not. Because if you are a Muslim, you're not working for eternity in heaven. You're working for the virgins that are being promised to you when you get to heaven. Only if you're martyred, by the way. Only if you're martyred. I've often wondered, do, what do women do when they martyr themselves for Islam? What do they have waiting for them? Hmm. Oh, you infidel, they would say. Jesus is making an emphatic statement. I am the way. And by which He means the way to heaven is not a religious system, a set of spiritual teachings to follow. The way cannot be found in you or your sincere efforts. The way is Me. You know the way to where I'm going because it's Me. And the minute you reduce the path to heaven where I'm going down to a list of do's and don'ts or try to come up to with an alternative approach to getting right with God the Father, you've put yourself on a path that leads to destruction. There, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, its end is the way to death. So if you think you can get there apart from Jesus Christ, you're fooling yourself. When I say I am the truth, he means trust me in this. Count on me and count on what I'm saying to you. I'm about to pay for your forgiveness with my blood. I cannot love you more than I do. And what I'm about to do on the cross is all that's needed to build the bridge between you and the Father. You cross it by believing in me, trusting that what I've done for you is all you'll ever need. To be right with God. And there are a lot of people out there that tell you that the, they know the, the, the truth. Now, you've got to hear me clear this morning, folks. I'm not giving you truth. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. And you can trust me, Jesus would say. When He says, I'm the life. He means there's a kind of life that is uh, that there's only a shadow of what God created it to be life without me is like an echo it is is it is at best a fading reflection of the real thing here for a moment and gone i love watching young people i love watching young couples raising their families and 
Cindy and I, we, we, we tear up a lot because we miss having children at home. I, I You know, people would tell me this for years. Oh, well, you'll just love it when those kids are gone. And then people would say, oh, you'll, you'll cry every day. And I used to think, I'm ready for them to leave. Please. And now they were right. They're right. You know, and, and in the midst of raising them, I cried every day. What am I going to do, Lord? <laughs> I did that too. But you know, it's so quick, isn't it? They come, and they're gone. Savor, savor those moments. Savor that time you have with your kids. Because it can come so and, and go so quickly. And so it is in our life. In our spiritual life. Sometimes we'll look up and we're, we're nearing death and we're ready for, for heaven. But what have you done in the process? Have you been doing anything for, for God? Have you been doing anything spiritually for the Lord? Jesus could have stopped right here and it's been enough to just kind of pin us to the back of our seats by what he said. But he doesn't stop there. He ups the ante even more when he adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what that basically means is that we can add the word only to each preceding phrase. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. You can't get there any other way. You can't buy your way there. You can't good your way there. You can't hope your way there. You can only get there. You can only get there through Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're here this morning. And just the assertion alone that Jesus is the only way to heaven kind of bugs you a little bit. But I want to give you three reasons why. That's the most wonderful bit of news to know. Number one, it's wonderful because it's clear. When you're trying to get somewhere, you need clarity. My wife let me know last week after the sermon, and she was very clear. And so I appreciate her sense of humor. And I appreciate a lot of your sense of humor. You went out and said, I saw her sharpening knives in the back of the chair. Nobody, nobody is satisfied with vagueness. Husbands, if your wife says she loves you, you want her to show that to you in some way. Wives, if your husband says he loves you, you want him to show that to you in some way. Children, you want your moms and your dads to say they love you. At least say, I love you. I had a dad that his only answer to that, I'd always ask him, I said, Dad, do you love us? And he said, well, I put a roof over your head, food in your belly, clothes on your back. But he would never say the words, I love you. Never. So when he died and I was 14, I was still waiting for him to say, I love you. And so I grew up in, a, in an environment where I didn't have a father figure that understood, just tell me you love me, Okay. It's really a simple thing. I've watched men, they agonize to say the words, I love you. Haven't you? Maybe it's been you. Maybe it's been you. But I want you to know today that it is a very clear message here. 
Let me give you a, a, a parody of that idea. For example, you're going to make a trip to Disney World. Rather than make reservations, you just show up at the airport and you see there's a flight listed on the monitor, flight 2020 to Orlando. And next to the flight number are the gates, gates 21 through 29. And so that doesn't make much sense to you, but you head down to that area and you figure somebody will point you to the proper gate when you get there. And when you arrive, you find that none of the gates have signs on them indicating the flight number or the destination. There are planes out there and people waiting to board. But you don't know where any of them are going. And you turn to some, uh, some fellow travelers and you say, Hey, which of these flights is going to Orlando? And they say, Oh, we were, we were just discussing that. John's looking out and he sees that really nice looking 747. So he's going to go through gate 26 because of that flight, because of that plane. But 22 has always been my lucky number, so I'm going to take gate 22. And some lady nearby says, my son-in-law travels all the time and he knows all about airport. And he said last time he went to Orlando, he went through gate 25, so I'm going to take that gate. And you say, yeah, but how do you know it's going to Orlando? And she answered, well, we can really, who can really know anything for sure? I figure I've got a, as good a chance as anybody on getting on the right plane. And finally, you can't take it anymore, so you go to the desk and you ask these flights, uh, uh, the attendants there, where, where flight 2020 to Orlando is, and the staff member says it this way. It's not our policy to tell people which gate they have to fly out of. That would be rather narrow-minded, wouldn't it? I mean... These are all wonderful planes with hardworking crews and sincere passengers. Who are we to say that one is better than another? Take whichever one you want. They're all going somewhere. Yeah, that's ridiculous, isn't it? And irresponsible, wouldn't it be? But just as ridiculous as it is to suggest that all roads lead to heaven and just as irresponsible as to withhold information that can help people get where they want to go is what you and I do today with the gospel. If you don't care, if you don't care where you spend eternity, then it doesn't matter which road you take. But if you want to go to heaven, you'd better be sure you're on the right track. And that's the wonderful thing about this narrow way that Jesus described. It's clearly marked so you know what's required of you. It's wonderful because it's clear. Secondly, it's wonderful because it actually works. This statement about Jesus, I am the way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Because see what Jesus promises, He delivers. He delivers. He can get you where you most want to go. Heaven is where most of us want to go. Amen? Now, I understand if, you, if we're punching tickets, you'll wait for the second load to go. I, I got you. But ultimately, you're ready to go. You want to go. Those of you that have lost mates in the last several years, you miss them. And you know they're there. And you're ready to go see them again, aren't you? That's right. That's right. Because you see, that's the, that's the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us. It's to not hang on to this world. And not hang on to this world. 
It doesn't matter who won the election, the nomination last Tuesday. I've told you that a hundred times. It doesn't matter who won. Our king is still on the throne. Our king is still leading us. Well, we're going to have to go through some hard times, preacher. Okay. I just read about a couple of illustrations where the woman's being chained to a bed and beaten. In 2007? Hmm? Mock trials of terrorist attacks on a school building and the portrayal is wild-eyed Christians welding guns because their kid can't pray? Hello. We're the radicals. We're the nuts. Peter did say those that follow Christ are peculiar people. But not in that way. But it's wonderful because it works. He can give you what you want most, which is freedom from sin and a real purpose in life. And I can say that boldly for two reasons. Number one, he personally demonstrated what he said. He spoke the most profound words that the world has ever heard. He lived the most remarkable, influential life in human history. He healed diseases, commanded the forces of nature, raised people from the dead, voluntarily died in the place of sinners like you and me, and was resurrected from the dead just as He said He would be. Threw the, threw the Pharisees into a quandary when He said, Tear down the temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Because they focused on the outer building and not the temple of God. Yeah. If our church, heaven forbid, burnt down today to the ground, could we have church next Sunday? I'm glad one of you could. <laughs> See, it's hard to have church out the building. Well, we can't. Blah, 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 blah. It's like this morning, Corey calls it, Dad, I can't get there. My car's blocked. I'm blocking Megan's car. Can you get her car out? And I can't get, can't get my car started. <sighs> so life changed for him. It also changed for us because we are so dependent on two people leading worship. And I love what he said. I said, well, son, can I come get you? I mean, I was thinking of a hundred ways I can get him here. And he said, Dad, Phyllis will be there. And I said, yep, she will be. But what if Phyllis killed over and didn't make it? I thought of a hundred reasons. Phyllis is going to drive four blocks to the church. Somebody going to knock her out of it. Coming up here. We can't have church. <gasps> there's, been, there's been Sundays when Phyllis is gone and we didn't have the, the guitar player. What do we do? We, we, we can't sing. Oh, we can't sing. Yeah. Every time I'm gone, somebody fills in, Russell, usually. You guys let me know how quick it is. Boy, you're going to lose your job for letting the young preacher there. I say, bring him on. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. I would love to lose my job because somebody is taking the ball and running with it. Yeah? That'd be great. That'd be awesome. But you see, when we follow Christ, when we come into Christ, He demonstrates what He says. Secondly, untold millions of people who follow Jesus have testified that He has, in fact, transformed their life. They've been forgiven. 
They've been delivered, and they are changed. And I'm looking at most of you this morning. Right here. Right here. We had a family reunion a few weeks ago, and it's the first one we've ever had. All my brothers and my sister. And so we went around the room just kind of telling our favorite stories. And it got to my number two brother. Uh, and he was, one of, he was one of those that was a, pardon if I, I don't mean to offend you by the phrase, but, but he was a hell raiser. <laughs> he, he, he lived on the edge and stayed on the edge and loved the edge. If there's any way he could get in trouble, he found a way to do it. Sometimes he got in trouble even when he didn't look for it, but it came to him because he was that kind of person. And those were the kind of stories we were telling until we got down to somebody mentioning that he found the Lord. In fact, I think that was me. Because what I said was, of all the stories that I remember him shooting my other brother off a bicycle with a pellet gun, I remember, I, I remember, I remember him uh, pulling a knife on my dad. I remember, oh, I, I remember all those things. I remember him knocking, or thinking he was going to knock out my oldest brother, and my oldest brother knocked him out colder. I remember all those things. But the one I will always profoundly remember is the Sunday that he got up out of the pew and walked forward to accept Christ as his Savior. I was home from college visiting family and just happened to be at church that day and happened to watch him get up. And my initial thought was, what in heaven's name is he fixing to do? I thought, what is he doing? And he went to give his heart to Christ. The profound change in him. Oh, it's unbelievable. And, and I, I always look back in awe of God's Holy Spirit, how it can transform a person in my brother. And he's, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but uh, he's enjoying the fruits of his labor. Hallelujah. I'm looking forward to seeing him again. Maybe he'll straighten me out on some of those stories we listen to. But you know people like that because it actually works. Then the third reason it's wonderful, because it's clear, because it actually works. And thirdly, it's wonderful because it's available to anyone who will trust Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says it like this in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The worship team comes to help me close. I want to tell you what's at stake here. Here's what's at stake. You can hear these bold statements that Jesus made. And you can conclude that it is intolerant, pushy, and arrogant. Or you can see these words, these statements, as the most loving act in history. When the Son of God comes for you and secures what you need most, and then He points the way for you to get in on it. So I ask you again, what will you do with Jesus? One day, when everything falls apart in your life, you'll be needing a Savior like Him to keep you and to be with you. Father, we ask you this morning to move in the hearts of your people here. Father, I ask you to earnestly, earnestly, earnestly touch these hearts today. 
And Father, there's only one way that you can do that. And that's if they let you. You've never been one to force your way into any of our lives, any of our hearts. You ask us to make a choice. You ask us if we want to come. And if we reject you, you just keep asking. If we decide selfishly through pride or whatever reason, and we think we can do it better, you let us. And Father, ultimately, ultimately, we all have to answer the question of what are we going to do with your son, Jesus Christ? Oftentimes, Father, I'm encountering people and I'm encountering the guy that I look at in the mirror quite often. I'm discovering that even though I've named your son Jesus as my Savior, I haven't necessarily made him Lord in every area of my life. I find that I'm struggling with things that I should have been over with years ago. But out of selfishness, I hang on to those things. I hang on to those friends. God, would you give me the courage to say no? Would you give me the backbone to stand firm? And Father, may I have the boldness, the boldness from your Spirit and dwelling presence of your Spirit in my life to seek and save the lost. Father, I can't seek anybody I'm found myself. So Lord, if there's somebody here today carrying a heavy burden, we ask you to help lift it. If there's somebody here today that's never claimed you as a Savior, God, would they let me know so we can sit down and study your scripture and understand better what that means. There might be somebody here that, that wants this church to be their home church. God, would you prompt them to make that decision as well. And Father, probably a host of folks that just need prayer. And would they have the courage to ask for prayer? We don't have to know what it is, just that they need prayer. And so God, if that's their decision, would you touch them in that way? So Lord, help, help us to let you be real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's